Hello and welcome to the Metrospective presented by Topps. Check out Topps Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Topps baseball cards. I'm Ted Berg, joined as always in Zoom conference by the Athletics Mets beat writer Tim Britton. Tim, since we last spoke, the Mets have taken three out of four, including two out of three from the very good San Diego Padres, and now the first in a four-game set with the Cubs that suddenly looks a lot sunnier after a stellar pitching performance from a guy we beat up on last show, David Peterson. Yeah, I don't think we can uh, yell at them for not being good against teams over 500 now as they, because the Phillies are now over 500 and because they beat a couple teams, uh, they are now 13 and 16 against those teams after being, I think, 2 and 12 uh, at one point. So uh, that that's how that stat changes. And, and Peterson, you know, after two really rough starts, uh, kind of answered the bell uh, on on Monday night, pitching six scoreless, first time in his career he pitched six scoreless, uh, and you know it, it wasn't a dominant performance. Uh, he didn't mm-hmm. like cruise through. Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say that. I mean, he had like three consecutive ten pitch one <laughs> ten pitch innings, um, but he was in control of the game uh, and you know got away with. Uh, there was like one bad two seam fastball early in the game uh, that was hit really hard by uh, Wilson Contreras, but the rest of the game it seemed like he had better command of his. Uh, of his fastballs, uh, of his slider, uh, just just what we saw a lot from of it was a lot of what we saw last year from David Peterson uh, on Monday night, and that's that was a really nice step in the right direction uh, for for him and for a rotation that's going you know as good as the top three, as good as good as the other four guys have been uh, lately. They're going to need that that fifth guy, that sixth guy, probably even a seventh guy to pitch well over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and like you said, not not totally dominant, not a ton of strikeouts, not an overwhelming number of ground balls. I think he got seven ground balls, which is which is solid, but but not like a a good Marcus Stroman ground ball game. But the what matters is the results, and and uh, for the first time in in three outings, he got results, and I think makes you feel a little bit better about this back end of the rotation, especially uh, because Joe Casey has also been pitching a, a, a quite a bit better. Yeah, I mean, Lucchese, I think we really started that conversation. We answered that question about the difference between his ERA and FIP. Ever since then, he's been lights out. Uh, You know, he made the changes to the mechanical changes to his delivery. He's not going over his head as much uh, in the windup. He's got simpler motion out of the stretch. Mets think that's eliminated any pitch tipping issues that he had previously. uh, And that, uh, you know, since then, I think the ERA is about 1-5 over four or five starts uh, at this point. Uh, you know, he hasn't gone super deep into those games. He get, finished five innings last time. 18 hitters. Did, they did not want him to face uh, the Padres order a third time. Uh, but, you know, I, I think he's slowly earning that, those opportunities moving forward that you can maybe trust him against a lineup a, a third time a little bit uh, and, and see what he can do against it. Yeah, and I'm not sure if you saw his his post game presser, but he was was uh, I would say ref- refreshingly frank about that. And you know, you you know, starting pitchers especially always want to stay in the game. We all remember Johan Santana yelling "I'm a man" at at Terry Collins and whatever else. But uh, you know, Lucchese, a guy who hasn't uh, necessarily you know doesn't have a a, a long major league resume. And he was respectful of Luis Rojas' decisions, but he said, yeah, like, I, I want to pitch deeper into games. And it's it's an interesting question because, it, you know, this one loss in, in of the of the last four, 
was one that presented several uh, managerial questions. And, and I think, you know, these are the type of things, especially bullpen choices, uh, are very easy to look at in hindsight. And a lot of times, a lot of times, you know, managers have more information than we do, for better or worse. And so, you know, we know he was shorthanded. Luis Rojas was shorthanded in Sunday's game. Uh, I don't know the that we know the extent to which he was shorthanded, but he was certainly going to avoid Lugo and Loop and Edwin Diaz. Um, and yet, Lucchese was cruising through five innings. Uh, he opted to take out Lucchese after the fifth and and go to Jerry's Familia, which which worked out fine in in the first of his two innings stint and and uh, swiftly came unraveled in the seventh. To me, leaving and I I I, I dislike leaving Familia in for that seventh inning a lot more than I disliked pulling Lucchese after five. Yeah, I mean, I, I wrote about it in the spring, the, the third time through the order penalty that Lucchese uh, has suffered from in his career. Coming into the year, you looked at, you know, the OPS against the first time through against him was 738, second time 685, third time 805. Seems like it could be an issue. But then if you look more specifically at like the individual batters that he faces three times. So, uh, you know, if he faces 21 guys in a, in a game, the first three hitters and compare how he does first, second, third, then it's a really stark difference. Uh, and that's really the decision you're making as a manager, right? A guy has gone through the lineup twice well. Uh, should we give him a third time? Uh, in, in those instances, Lucchese, it's a 652 OPS first time, 629 second, 922 third. So in his career, he's had games like Sundays where he's looked really good, and then he's gotten to that third time through the order and struggled. Does that mean you never give him a third time through the order? Uh, no, like you occasionally give him that opportunity. A uh, one-run game against a lineup that's front-loaded the way the Padres lineup is might not be that time. I'm okay with pulling him uh, in that situation. Uh, I think if you were really concerned about your bullpen depth or shallowness and availability that day, then maybe you could have considered an opener for that that instance uh, so that mm-hmm. Lucchese could go a third time through the second half of the order. Uh, I don't know how that would have affected him mentally, though, given that he had had several good starts before that, and now you're you're going back to an opener. Uh, that's probably something you that that would feel a little too cute at the time. Uh, so I was okay with that part of it. Uh, Familia, the second inning, you know, I was surprised he's only done it once before this season because he did it a few times last year, but not really in close games. Uh, and you know, the the first time he did it this year. Uh, it was he'd gotten two outs the first time around and was going for three more in the second inning and tired uh, in that second inning. I think he got the first two outs and then allowed uh, a couple guys to reach. Did get out of it uh, clean, uh, didn't allow a run, but you know I think he threw 37 pitches that time uh, and clearly was feeling it towards the end. Uh, whereas again on Sunday you could see uh, that he just he just didn't have it uh, as the pitch count uh, got elevated on him. Uh, so yeah, I, I think I would have made the, the move with him at least one batter quicker, uh, for fam, uh, which is what Jacob Barnes said. He thought he was getting, you know, thought he was getting ready to face fam. Um, and then he comes in for Tatis, uh, and gives up the, the home run. Uh, you know, I think we can, I probably would have gone with someone that is not Barnes, you know, whether it was Drew Smith, uh, or, uh, Trevor May, uh, for that big out and then figured out what to do. Uh, in the eighth and ninth innings, if you had to pinch hit for May, um, that's the biggest point in the game. Uh, 
but uh, they held off on him. Uh, and you know, like it's it's individual bullpen decisions. Like I was thinking uh, the other day, like I should start a Twitter account where I quibble with every bullpen decision a manager makes that I dislike, and it would be the <laughs> busiest Twitter account in Major right. League Baseball because it would be like three a game for thirty teams. Yeah, if you and I have I have done this. Uh, I did this multiple times in the past, but basically every single year, uh, if you search any manager's last name and bullpen, you can find evidence of fans of every single team in the major leagues who who are convinced that their team's manager is the worst at, at negotiating his bullpen. And it's just that, you know, the fickle nature of bullpens, again, these, uh, you know, the occasional limitations that, that sometimes we don't know about. I, you know, uh, Miguel Castro is, is, I guess, a little bit banged up. And so, yeah, you could say, like, going to Barnes there, a guy who has really been hit the hardest of anyone in the Mets bullpen in a huge spot, questionable decision, but uh, not a ton of buttons he had to press. Uh, you point out Trevor May, who hadn't pitched in a very long time. Now that's a that's a potential, uh, you know, that's a potential hiccup too. You're not sure you want to bring a guy in for his first time in a week to face Fernando Tatis Jr. with the bases loaded. Uh, plus then what we saw out of May in Monday night's game certainly did not inspire a lot of confidence that he would have gotten out of that situation any better than Barnes did. Yeah, I mean, he, he's get, he's had struggles with the home run ball as well of late. Uh, so, you know, it, it was a bunch of imperfect options. And that's kind of what the Mets and Luis Rojas are going to have over this stretch of so many games in so few days. Uh, is that there's going to be games where you don't have uh, several pieces in your bullpen uh, available. You know, hopefully not as many where you're missing basically four of your top five back-end relievers um, in Diaz, Castro, Lugo, uh, and Loop. Um, but th- there's going to be times you're picking between, you're, you're pushing someone into an uncomfortable area, whether it's pushing Lucchese, uh, into a sixth inning and a third time through the order, or pushing Familia uh, to a second inning, or pushing someone like Barnes, you know, Barnes now designated for assignment, but pushing someone like that uh, into a, a higher leverage spot than they've been used in the past, uh, and hoping it works out. Uh, and it, it will work out at times, and it won't at others. Uh, and I don't think that's necessarily, you know, like that will happen over the course of a 162 game season, and it is okay that that happens occasionally. You just don't want it to be happening all the time. Like, you know, if if that same thing plays out and you had Edwin Diaz and Miguel Castro available, that's a very different uh, conversation that we're having uh, than, than with those guys not there. And that brings up another point, really, which is, and, and you know, we're harping on one loss in a three-game series against, a, again, a very, very good San Diego Padres team uh, and, a, and a team, the Mets, that are now, you know, pretty healthily in first place in their division, despite the Phillies playing well, a team that has about an 85% chance of making the playoffs, uh, according to both fan graphs and baseball perspectives. So, uh, you know, it's important to keep some perspective, but can you put some blame on the front office for giving Rojas a game where he was down four members of his bullpen? Well, I mean, like they've got nine relievers. Uh, so even if you're down four members of your bullpen, you've still got Five. I think the the question is like uh, how much had they talked about uh, moving on from Barnes because you know obviously they designated him for assignment a day later uh, mm-hmm. and if you're going into a game uh, and you know Lucchese is is probably not going to go more than five innings uh, and uh, you're worried about getting you're thinking you're going to try to get length out of someone in your bullpen uh, 
uh, and you want it to be familia, then you can say, well, well, why didn't they make the move, you know, Sean Reed Foley for Barnes a day earlier than they ended up doing? Uh, maybe that's that's a question you have uh, for the front office. That that's not Rojas's decision as much. Um, so I, yeah, I, I, you know, when you you get beat by the ninth guy in your bullpen against you know arguably the best hitter in the National League uh, in a big spot, uh, you you feel like that's a that's a, a failure on on multiple levels. Um, but again, it's it's one game. I'm I'm not I'm not going to to castigate. Uh, Rojas or the front office too much for that. I will fire them all. They lost <laughs> that a was, game. How dare they? That was one of the comments essentially on my story about that game. Uh, was we've got to start talking about Luis Rojas and firing him because of this game. Uh, Literally that's, the that's, day that's before, the day before, people were saying he's the preemptive preemptive uh, favorite for manager of the year. And then like a half hour after that, everybody's like, fire this guy. He brought in, <laughs> he left a million for a second inning. Yeah, I, I also do not do not start talking. You know, like it's I think it's OK to start talking about Cy Young and MVP and rookie of the year candidates. I think it's very strange to talk about manager of the year candidates in June because so much of it is based off of like what the writer's expectations for a team were all that's uh, all that award is the all, yeah. all the award is is manager of the team that most exceeded expectations like does it have anything to do with your managerial ability maybe right but like mostly it's just like hey this team per- performed a whole lot better than we expected so like it must be the manager yeah like the, i remember one time voting for it in the american league uh, and uh, Paul Molitor won because he had taken a team that had lost 100 games the year before, and they'd won 85 and made the playoffs. Uh, and I did not place him first on my ballot because uh, I thought that team should not have lost 100 games the year before under Paul Molitor, uh, and that they were actually a much better team than that the year before. Uh, and, you know, like there were other good candidates. I ended up voting uh, for some. I was the only person who put first on the ballot a guy who was later uh, suspended for a year for cheating uh, in AJ Hinch. Uh, but, you know, I Molitor got fired again <laughs> a year after that. So it's just, it's yeah, it's a weird award. I don't think we're like well positioned to actually know uh, who the best manager in baseball is uh, or in a league is. Uh, and so I just feel uncomfortable like saying, oh, you know, the, the Mets have had some injuries. Let's give it to Luis Rojas in, on June 15th. Uh, and the same, you know, I, I wouldn't say like, Gabe Kapler's Giants are doing way better than I expected. Kevin Gosman is great. I think that's that's Gabe Kapler's doing. Uh, let's put right. him first. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Switching gears briefly, and I did not prepare you for this, but just before the show, I was I was uh, 
I was I one thing I like to do with my spare time is just like sort of open up Jacob deGrom's baseball reference page and stare at it blankly and appreciate it. And I was doing that as as I often do on on Monday mornings. Uh, and I started looking at that some of the categories, uh, uh, the stat categories there are now. Baseball Reference this weekend added Negro League stats, uh, which are now you know officially recognized as as Major League stats. Um, so Negro League stats have been added to the leaderboards, and this changes some of our historical stats. Uh, a guy by the name of, of Eugene Bremer, who was actually in his career, I believe, played more outfield than he did pitch. Um, at age 20, pitching for the Cincinnati Tigers, finished a year with a 0.71 ERA, a 6.33 ERA+. Plus, um, and he'll have no home runs. He only pitched 50 and two-thirds innings. It was a much shorter season. Um, those are now the benchmarks for, for ERA and ERA+. Plus. Uh, and Jacob deGrom, if this season were to continue as it has, which is unlikely because he's, uh, you know, he, he's been otherworldly even by his own standards, he would become uh, the new all-time leader in ERA for a season, the new all-time leader for ERA plus in a season, the new all-time leader for fielding independent pitching in a season, the new all-time leader for walks and hits pl- for per innings pitched in a season, uh, the new all-time leader in strikeouts per nine among qualifiers for the season, and the new all-time leader in strikeouts per walk for an all-time se- for 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 a se- single season. Yeah, yeah, that that would be impressive. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm trying to think, like, is there anything he would not be the all-time lead? Like, what is he lagging behind in? Um, well, he's not going to catch, like, the the 18, like, the old Haas Radborn, or, like, I think there was a guy named Will White from the 1880s who would throw, like, 670 innings a season. I'd say innings pitched, he is unlikely to to match up with, with the old guys. Yeah, he's, he's not going to get to 40 wins, we don't think, uh, this year. Uh, 40 wins, I see, it seems unlikely, you know, unless they start like a major change of view. Like if they're like, what if we just bring in DeGrom for the fifth every single day <laughs> so he can he can get to 50 wins or whatever? It, it is not, you know, they, they've won his last five starts uh, and he's got four wins in that stretch. So they are actually taking advantage of him pitching in a way that they... they didn't in 2018 and 2019 when he won the Cy Young, and, and they weren't at the start of the season. Uh, but it would be uh, funny is not the right word because this is a Mets podcast. But it would be ironic uh, if he does finish with an ERA that starts with a zero, and the Mets go like 15 and 16 in his starts. Uh, yeah, that would be yeah. I would say like it would be not surprising. Is 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 the answer like for, for it would be surprising for literally anyone else in the world? But for with Degrom, you'd be like, yeah, that actually sounds about right. Yeah, I mean, I, I the Brewers were kind of doing that with Corbin Burns for a while. I think they have improved on that. Where I, I looked like two weeks ago to see what what pitchers did have like the worst re- their teams had the worst record when they started, and Corbin Burns was like third in the National League, third worst. But they have they have started winning for for him and everyone else uh, of late. Yeah, the Brewers pitching staff has been just uh, incredible, uh, and it brings up an interesting point, which I I, uh, I have a bone to pick with something you tweeted, um, which is a, a stupid road to go down. <laughs> because if if you wanted to bring up things I've tweeted, we could be here for for a very long time. But uh, you asserted that Degrom would be perhaps the Mets only all-star now we're, we're a month out from the all-star game and a lot can change between now and then as you know and i know but i have to feel like marcus stroman and, and ty walker have have earned all-star nods this season 
you know, the the following tweet said, of course, Stroman, Walker, and Edwin Diaz are would, would warrant serious. No one sees the follow. No, no one sees, sees the, the qualify. No one sees that. No one sees that. Yeah, I mean, like Degrom is the only one you're sure of, right? Like, like if he doesn't pitch between now and the, the All Star game, he still makes the All Star team. Uh, and you know, like you were saying, I mean, in 2018, at this this point in time, I was thinking that that Brandon Nimmo was a shoe in for the All Star team, and then he he got hit by a pitch, he slumped, and he didn't make it. Uh, in 2019, I was looking at the first baseman in the National League, and I was like, I don't think Pete Alonso cracks this group. Uh, and, of course, he did. Uh, so, you know, you take June all-star projections with a, a grain of salt because they're only two-thirds of the way there. Uh, you know, De- DeGrom's going to make it. Um, Walker and Stroman, I think they're in position to be part of that that conversation. Uh, the issue is you've got a lot of really good starting pitchers in the National League right now. Uh, you know, like as good as they've been, you know, Walker's ERA is fifth in the NL uh, as we, we record this on Tuesday morning. Stroman's is 2-3-2. That's 10th in the National League, which feels like it yeah. should be better than that. Uh, you go by war uh, or at least Fangraph's war uh, and they're a little bit lower. Walker is 13th uh, in the NL. Stroman's 23rd because uh, FIP is probably not the best measure of uh, what he's he's capable of as a sinker baller. Uh, so. And, and and you also get starting pitchers. I'm trying to think through some of the uh, the less competitive teams in the National League, who their all stars would be. Uh, if you have to worry about like JT Brubaker right. being the the Pirates all star, probably Adam Frazier. Uh, but I'm not positive on that. Uh, you know, Mac Max Scherzer will be there for the Nats. Trevor Rogers should be there for Miami. Uh, the Reds have some good hitters. The Diamondbacks. Uh, <sighs> Could be Cattell Marte, I guess. Uh, I don't think it's anyone from their pitching staff. Um, and then Colorado, uh, you know, maybe it's uh, Austin Gomber or Herman Marquez who are, are having like decent Rockies-ish seasons. Uh, Ryan McMahon's been pretty good for them. He might make it as an infielder. But you've got that to deal with as well. So I think if you're talking about 12 pitchers uh, and you're thinking like eight or nine starters, uh, those get Walker and Stroman are already like at the cut line as we speak right. uh and uh you know we'll see how they do over the next month like there's no reason to have concern about them like completely falling off a cliff but uh you know if you're asking like taking over under on their performance to this point with a combined 221 ERA between the two of them uh and what they'll be over the next month like i think it's just just logical to take the over uh because you just don't think they'll be quite this good uh for the rest of the season. I think this is as good as they've, they've, they've been together in a, a long time. So, uh, you know, same with DeGrat. Like if you're asking over under a 0.56 ERA uh, to this point, I'll probably take the over, but you know, not sure. Ye of little faith. <laughs> you know, I'll definitely take the over on Kevin Gosman's one, four, three, that, that will be my over. <laughs> that, yeah, that's a, that's a safer, a safer play on a Mets podcast, but I guess the you know the point about all stars sort of uh, emphasizes something about these guys, which we we've talked about quite a bit. But uh, how very much the pitching has been carrying this team, which is uh, a successful team, thirty three and twenty five, and and sitting in first place. And like I said, uh, the you know overwhelming favorite to to make the postseason in the National League East, uh, depending on which uh, version of wins above replacement you you use. Uh, their best, well, actually by, by both, by both baseball reference and fan graphs, their top offensive player, 
has been Francisco Lindor, a guy who has been overwhelmingly, uh, you know, until uh, certainly until recently, uh, a disappointment. It's just his, his defense has been valuable enough, and and he's played, which puts him uh, at odds with with just about the, everyone else in the in the regular lineup. He's played every day, um, and so that has been enough to make him the most valuable guy on the team. Uh, second most on on baseball references is Pete Alonso, uh, who now you know, despite earlier uh, slumps. Uh, if you look at the big picture and if you compare it to the league, which is important with Alonzo because it's not going to be that 2019 numbers because no one's putting up 2019 numbers, but uh, he has a healthy 130 OPS plus. I don't think you can complain about that. Uh, it, but, you know, obviously does not bring the defensive value of a, of an elite shortstop. Um, and and by Fangraph's war, tied with, with, uh, with Francisco Lindor at the top of the Mets list, is Jonathan VR, uh, a guy I don't think uh, we would have likely talked about as a potential like position player MVP for this team uh, as of early April. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm just looking at the, the fan graphs war now. Uh, and, you know, you've got Lindor and VR are tied at, at 0.9. They're not even at a full win above replacement yet. Uh, third, you have uh, Brandon Nimmo, who's missed the last month. Uh, fourth is Alonzo. Fifth is J.D. Davis. He's missed the last month plus. Uh, sixth is Billy McKinney. He's played 14 games. Seventh is the backup catcher, Tomas Nito. Uh, eighth is the backup center fielder, Kevin Pillar. Uh, ninth is Jacob deGrom. <laughs> uh, so it's just, it's a really wacky uh, list. And, and it speaks to the way that their position player group has just not been stable over the course of the, the season. It is like Lindor just has 40 more plate appearances than, than just about anyone else. Uh, 30 more than, than Smith. Smith is next at 31 plate appearances behind him. Uh, so that that's why he's built that up. He's also, you know, an excellent defender. Um, so even in disappointing offensive season, he's still been their most valuable position player. So, I, yeah, I don't think we're going to see any uh, Mets position players on the All-Star team. But it, it does, uh, you know, VR's placement there raises some... some you can You can ask, like, should he be... Uh, playing more regularly even after everyone is back. Uh, you know, should he be sharing some time with Davis at third? But D Davis himself has played really well, uh, has hit a lot. You know, J.D. Davis is chasing 400. He's got a 390 average in the middle of June. Uh, it is only in 48 <laughs> plate appearances, but, uh, you know, he's been really uh, an important part of that lineup the little bit that he's been in there, uh, the same way that, like, McKinney has. They've, they've kind of uh, been similarly productive uh, in the same amount of span, same span of time. Um, and, you know, you can start to project out when all of these guys get back. There's a, a much higher offensive ceiling for this team than we've seen. Like, they're in first place because of all that their pitching has done. Uh, and that, that pitching is likely to regress, like like we just talked about, a little bit. You know, that's still very good pitchers at the top that you expect to be good, if not, like, absurdly good. Um, and But the offense should be able to balance that out, theoretically, uh, that those guys come back. Uh, and the offense starts scoring more than than four runs on a more consistent basis. Uh, but, you know, we still have to see that happen. We've got good news. You know, Jeff McNeil could be back this weekend. Uh, Michael Conforto and, and Nimmo could be going out on rehab assignments by this weekend. Uh, so, you know, you could imagine a scenario where uh, by the time the Phillies come to City Field, uh, by, uh, you know, that last weekend of June that the Mets have, uh, McNeil, Conforto, and Nimmo all back in their lineup, and and really Davis is the only one they're missing uh, from their their usual starting nine. 
if that happens, do you think that it's as simple as as everyone goes back to the spots they were in? McNeil plays second base every day, uh, Conforto right field every day, Nimmo center field until perhaps late in the game when you when you uh, maybe slide him over for Pilar or uh, and and leave VR at third base where he's played very well and like you said where where JD Davis is is not imminently returning uh, or do they get a little more creative with it? Yeah, it's interesting because of the timing of it with McNeil coming back first because he's the one who can bounce around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, do you do you with with Conforto and Nimmo do back relatively soon after? Do you even bother with with having him go to the outfield at all? Because uh, he, you know, he's uh, a guy who can play left and right. Do you put him in right field on some days because you prefer to have Guillaume in the lineup than uh, like Pilar in center? You know, you can bump McKinney into center field a little bit. Uh, I don't think you want to do that too consistently. Um, I think if, if you feel good about Conforto or Nimmo coming back within a week, you probably don't mess around with the outfield for, for McNeil, considering he's coming back from a hamstring injury. And uh, at least the, the team has said in the past that uh, playing the outfield kind of stresses his legs a little bit more than playing the infield because of all the running. So mm-hmm. I, I, would, I probably wouldn't do that because it's such a short time di- difference for, for the guys to come back. But if, you know, if there's any kind of uh, setback or, or change in timing and you're talking, uh, okay, it's two to three weeks until those guys come back, then maybe you start to think about McNeil out there. But, you know, I, I think in general, it's probably just bringing him back to play second. And then you have VR and, and Gourmet can get some time at third base as well. Uh, and you probably start giving Lindor uh, a, a day off more frequently than they have. I think they've only given him the one so far. So you, you can can spot him at short a little bit more easily than you have so far. Well, and I think you also you you slot McNeil at second base because you don't want to. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would feel very wrong to take Billy McKinney out of the lineup at this point. Yeah, I mean, like he's uh, the guy you're trying to keep in there uh, more so than than Guillaume or Pilar even uh, with, with the way McKinney's hitting uh, of late. Uh, you just kind of ride that hot bat and then, you know. It pro- again, Billy McKinney's probably not going to deliver a thousand OPS the entire season. Uh, but you, you know, while he's performing this way, you you stick with it. I think until until he cools off. I think that's right, and I think I mean, am I wrong in saying that? I think that if you know, and this is the type of thing these things always work themselves out. You know, we talk about like a, a roster crunch, a playing time crunch. They, someone, I mean, it, I hate to say it, uh, you know, someone's going to get hurt. Someone else is going to get hurt. That's that's how baseball goes. There's never been a team whose problem is is too many good players and, and not enough playing time to go around. You figure that out. But um, if this team returns to full health, uh, has Billy McKinney earned himself a, a, an outfield role moving forward? Like, do you, do you bring back Almora? I, I don't know. You know, do you bring back Almora if he's healthy um, over McKinney at this point? Well, I think you know he's he's earned the possibility of a bench spot, right? Because uh, when when everyone's healthy, I think you're still playing Smith, Nimmo, and, and Conforto in your outfield on a regular mm-hmm. basis. Um, but when you look at okay, who do you want coming off your bench? Pilar is there, um, and then if your your fifth outfielder, uh, I think you can make the McKinney over Almora case because of of how he's played so far. Um, that he gives you you know Al- Almora and Pilar. Uh, are kind of similar in the sense that you know they're both right-handed hitters they can both play center field they're both uh positive defenders uh more so than offensive players uh, mckinney's a little bit different than that that's a, a problem pretty nice bat to have off the bench uh late in games when you want to pinch hitter 
Uh, and, uh, you know, Almora has options and McKinney doesn't. Uh, so it's easier to hang on to both of them uh, in that, that situation. Um, and, you know, Almora is another guy who could be back by this weekend. And uh, I think uh, Luis Rojas has, has talked about him as if you know, he's a shoe-in to be activated to the Major League roster. Uh, of course, that's before you have uh, Nimmo and Conforto back. So, you know, he can get, they, they bring him back. Uh, and then maybe it's it's Mason Williams who gets uh, sent down or, or in his case designated for assignment because he uh, he does not have options. And he's also uh, played well, to be fair. I mean, it's a right. very limited amount of time, but he's played well. Right. He, he's got uh, uh, an OPS plus over 100 as well uh, and a very short, you know, 29 plate appearances and has played pretty good defense. So, you know, you've, you've got some decisions there. Uh, and it's it's interesting to me because you think about you think ahead a month from now and the trade deadline. And while this team, like the position players have been the weakness of this team all season, like their offense has not been what you expected to be, but because of the return you have of all these players, uh, because of the depth you've built up, because of guys like McKinney and VR stepping up, uh, even as pitching has been the team's strength, that seems like the area that you'd want to uh, buttress the most going forward in in the trade deadline uh and like finding another starter because there there aren't reinforcements there coming uh in the same way at least not until uh later in the season uh in in Carrasco and Syndergaard maybe Carrasco is back uh sometime in July but uh you, you can't count on it as, you can't you count feel, on it you don't feel quite as confident about uh rolling out your starting five uh the rest of the season as, as you might with with your starting nine well, we have a question about buttressing the, the rotation for the, the distant future uh, from Zach on Twitter. He wants to know, he says, for the next podcast, I'd be interested in hearing you guys talk about the potential for a Marcus Stroman extension, the likelihood, the cost, the length, and any insights Tim may have as to possible ongoing discussions. So start with that last part. Do you have any insight as to possible ongoing discussions? Uh, I have more insight into like flying buttress design uh, and and medieval cathedrals or something. Big like Gothic that. guy, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I uh, you know I'm I'm curious why Zach doesn't want to know if I have any insight as to possible <laughs> ongoing discussions. I am. Uh, some will recall the person who very tentatively broke the Scott Hairston signing of 2010 or 2011 or whatever whatever year that happened, but. Uh, yeah, I also have have no insight. I guess the insight that I have is that if you look at the free agent starters for this offseason, there's Clayton Kershaw and I can't I can't imagine Clayton Kershaw's really going to be on the open market very well. Like I just the only two scenarios I could see for Kershaw are like he he returns to the Dodgers. It seems like he'll be a Dodger for life and then there's like this slim chance he wants to go home and pitch in Dallas and and play for the Rangers, but like I just can't see a big bidding war for for Clayton Kershaw this offseason. And so Stroman looks like kind of the best starting pitcher on the market, and and a guy who made a, a really really good call in in taking that qualifying offer and and like almost as a pillow contract for free agency. Um, and so it's hard to think that at this point in the season. Stroman and, and Stroman has said, you know, I mean, it seems like Stroman's really happy. He he talks about how much he loves his team. He loves his teammates. Uh, I know I, for one, uh, absolutely just love watching this guy play baseball. I would love to see the Mets extend him. Uh, it doesn't seem like a good business move for Stroman and, and his team to sign an extension now when if when if he pitches anything like this well in the in the second half of the season uh he is looking at a, a payday 
in free agency. He's he's only thirty, um, so he's got you know he's he's on the long side. He'll be on the long side of thirty in free agency, but not. Uh, it's not like he's 34, 35. He's got he's got some good years ahead of him. Um, now you know you look at the at the at the back of the baseball card, and it's it's more good years. He's he's had some inconsistency in his past. He's had some injuries in his past, but um, he has been in recent seasons largely healthy. He obviously he opted out last year, but um, the the rough 2018 looks like the anomaly in of the of his last four seasons um the others being healthy and effective and and so to me stroman looks like a guy who who could be looking at nine figures in free agency yeah i mean you you've got the the free agent class you've got the older cohort with with kershaw and scherzer and and don't forget justin verlander coming off tommy oh right right be a free agent as well uh and then and scherzer's hurt now too right right he well you know I don't know if they put him on the injured list. He might he might pitch against the Mets this weekend, okay. uh, depending on how that works out. Uh, and then you've got some some younger guys who are still older than Stroman who have shorter track records. Uh, and that like Gosman is going to be a free agent coming off what presumably will be a, a very good season for him the way it's gone so far. Uh, you know, John Gray, um, Anthony Sclafani is having a nice year in San Francisco. Carlos Rodon. Uh, who's having a really good season for the White Sox and and is younger than Stroman? He'd, he'd be, I think, the only guy on that list under thirty, along with Noah Syndergaard. Uh, so you know, Syndergaard's issues this year that he's probably only going to have a handful of starts before he hits uh, free agency. Uh, that well, now changes. now Syndergaard almost feels like he's in Stroman's situation where he, if if they offer him, he would be sort of wise to take that that qualifying offer. He can think about the qualifying offer, it, and you know it really depends on how he does over us. If he looks really good for six starts and then is part of your postseason rotation and and has another couple good starts there, uh, that that could be enough for a team to bet on him. Uh, I was thinking a couple weeks ago, like you know when Zach Wheeler signed his his five year hundred eighteen million dollar deal with the Phillies. At the time, he had a, a one hundred career ERA plus. Uh, you know that was a team betting on uh, recent results and stuff. Uh, and uh, I, I wondered, like, how much money is Zach Wheeler's success in Philadelphia going to make some other guys like Noah Syndergaard, uh, like Kevin Gosman, like Rodone, like guys who have shorter track records of success, but but strong recent results and who have always had the stuff to be good. Uh, and uh, I, I wonder how that will affect the free agent market. And that's something that that Stroman, because of the way he pitches, because he's a sinker baller. Uh, and doesn't get as many strikeouts. He doesn't tantalize a front office right. the way some of these other guys do. And but because he's five six, having... which is which is unfair, right? But but it's true, right? Like you, we have this. Zach Wheeler looks like a pitcher, right? He's six foot four and lean, and he throws one hundred. And like that's a guy you feel like you can look and see an ace. And and I think it's still hard for teams. Like there are these built in biases, um, a lot of them, you know, across the board in baseball. But it's, you know, one of them certainly is against short right handed starting pitchers. Um, and so I think it's like a it's a mental leap for for some front office guys, even in twenty twenty one to to like go for a long term deal to a guy who just simply just like doesn't look the part. It's five seven, you know. He, okay. He earned, <laughs> when when we're under six feet, we we like every inch to be counted. Um, but yeah, I, I, but I, David Wright was listed at, at six feet, and I I am five foot ten, and like I David Wright was a guy I looked eye to eye at. Yeah, I, I, 
there are uh covering the the red sox they had a bunch of guys who were like my height and i was like oh i can't use the height excuse for the reason why i did not succeed in baseball the way i can in basketball well and petroya is tiny petroya is whatever whatever he's listed at is is generous altuve a lot of these the baseball heights are questionable Pedroia, Betts, Benintendi, Bradley. I think I was as tall as all of them, if not taller. Um, with Stroman, yeah, like if, for him, it does not make sense to engage on an extension at, at the current moment because it's not going to be for the same amount that he would get in free agency. Uh, you know, I think the Mets are probably more uh, liable to be involved in a, a Stroman free agent conversation this winter uh, because of what's happened not only with his success, but with, with Syndergaard uh, and the way things have gone with him this year. It It'll be interesting whether, you know, if Syndergaard takes a qualifying offer, that would happen relatively early in the offseason, the same way it did with Stroman last year. Uh, And if that happens, then you say, okay, you've got DeGrom, Walker, Syndergaard, Carrasco, and Peterson coming back for next season. Do you want, is is Stroman the guy you want to spend money on? uh, Or do you want to try to upgrade somewhere else? Do you want to save that money for Michael Conforto offensively? Mm -hmm. Uh, if, If Syndergaard doesn't take the qualifying offer then i think you know if you're trying to choose between stroman and Syndergaard, you might be more apt to go you know whereas before the season i would have said this is a team that that would probably pick Syndergaard because of its history with him because he's a year younger uh now i wonder if that's switched more to uh they'd be more interested in having stroman long term uh than Syndergaard uh because of the, the better track record of health and, and recent results obviously uh, but i think it's a really interesting dynamic to have uh, it's really tough for me to to figure out how I you know I haven't done the the deep dive on on wins above replacement and stuff and and try to project what they would make uh, in the off season. Um, like you said, nine figures for Stroman. I I think <laughs> now, I th- now that I, feels now I'm feeling like well, especially with the the way contracts have been going, I feel like that was maybe uh, hyperbolic on my part. Like I think that if he again like so like I said like I think that with a different build. Um, he might, he might be like, if he was looked like Garrett Cole, like it might be, it might be different, but, uh, I, I don't know, maybe nine figures is, is aggressive, but like, again, you know, he's a starting pitcher. He's been healthy and he's really good. Right. I mean, he's been, uh, I guess has, he hasn't made an, he did make the all-star team in 2019. So he's been an all-star, you know, if, if he makes the all-star team this year, that's an all-star, uh, twice the last two seasons he's pitched. Uh, and, uh, you know, build and stuff aside the biases against them. If you just look at the numbers, I think when I did it a few years ago, when I did, it, I think prior to the 2020 season, uh, I was looking at kind of like the Homer Bailey contract, which is a terrible contract. You don't, you don't want to like be put in the same sentence as that because the contract worked out so poorly. Uh, but obviously Stroman and Bailey are very different pitchers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was six for 105. And, and I thought like Stroman would be like a five for 105 guy at that stage. I'd have to go back and, and look at it again. Uh, but the whole market Syndergaard, has changed since that, right? Like, right? Yeah. Like that's just Homer Bailey would not get six and one oh five now. But I, I think uh, it is probably you know none of us thought Wheeler was going to get nine figures again. Markets mm-hmm. changed since then. Um, but uh, it'll th- both of those free agencies, Stroman and Syndergaard, I think will be fascinating uh, and and big stories for the Mets because I, I don't think there's much of a chance that they'll bring back both. Uh, I think there is a chance they bring back one. Well, I, you know, and it's a, as a fan, it's tough. I, you know, I love Syndergaard, 
But uh, watching Stroman, and I always liked Stroman with the Blue Jays. Like he's just a he's a very interesting and engaging guy. Obviously, he's a he's uh, sort of a different sort of dude with the with the height and the way he wears it as a chip on his shoulder. Um, but man, watching this guy pitch has just been awesome. And, and I think and and watching him talk post game too. Uh, he had a comment that I loved when he was talking about uh, Degrom and Walker and the whole staff, and he said, uh, "You know, we all feed off the goat." And made me think of of Greek Easter a little bit, and and uh, that that I found enjoyable, and also just like how good of an athlete he is, and what a solid, like what a excellent fielder he is. He looks good with the bat, like he strikes me. Um, it's a weird comp, but he almost reminds me of like Mark Burley, this guy who is just like this guy's just really good at baseball and happens to be a pitcher. Um, and I love guys like that. Uh, Dallas Keuchel is another guy who kind of reminds me like that. Like, and and they're they're all ground ball pitchers, and I think that's a ground ball pitchers who are excellent fielders, which is like always a fun thing because it means you're getting some some opportunities as a pitcher that you might not if you were more fly ball prone. But uh, just a, a for me a delight to watch. It's it's just so refreshing to hear a Georgetown alum speak so highly of a Duke alum. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, but even that is like even that is cool, right? Like this guy, he blew out his knee in 2015, and he could have gone, you know, he could have he could have put his head between his uh, put his tail between his legs and been sad all year. But he went back and got his degree. Like that's that's cool. That's something I I really respect. Like he didn't have to, right? Like you you he was bound to make tons of money playing baseball, uh, and instead became a, a Duke alum. Yeah, so it's it's. I think he's he's so much fun to watch because he is different from so many other pitchers, uh, and because he, you know, we we talk about wanting to see more emotion, more excitement in baseball, uh, and he shows that every fifth day. Uh, and his his defensive prowess as a pitcher is something else. I I don't think I've ever covered a pitcher who is as good defensively as he is, mm-hmm. uh, and that is that is something you don't see very often. It's, it's not something that's like emphasized when we discuss the sport is, is how good a, a pitcher can be with his glove. Uh, so that is, uh, but if you're a ground is, ball guy and you're a plus defender, like it, it makes a real difference over the course of a year. Yeah. I mean, there, there's probably an out every two games he pitches that he, he gets that, that almost any other pitcher doesn't, uh, you know, there, there was the, the fun one in Colorado is the one that sticks out. I think he also had one against the Rockies at home. Uh, that was uh, a remarkable play. Uh, so, you know, I think I'd have to check actually if he's leading the Mets pitchers in defensive runs saved because Ty Walker had a few, not just in his last start but also because he holds the holds runners really well. Uh, so he's yeah Walker's still their their leader in DRS as a pitcher um, because of of how well he's done uh, holding runners I believe. Um, but that's that's uh, the, the Mets have gotten really solid uh, defensive work from several different pitchers from from Stroman from Degrom from Walker. Uh, all those guys are good fielders on top of uh, really, really excellent pitchers. Yeah, I mean, I guess the in conclusion on Strom is I, I don't think it makes sense for him to sign an extension. Um, I doubt the Mets. I'm sure the Mets realize it doesn't make sense for him to sign an extension. Uh, he and I, and I wouldn't blame him at all for testing free agency. But uh, as a fan, man, I really hope they bring this guy back. <laughs> yeah, and that would be, you know, you can imagine that that keeps... If they keep either of those guys, really, that keeps most of their rotation intact moving forward. Uh, and you've got kind of your your five, you know, depending on whether it's Syndergaard on a one-year thing or or Stroman on a longer-term deal. Uh, you've got those five together for a little bit of time uh, going into 2022. 
If you, like Zach, have a question for the Metrospective podcast, you can tweet it at us. I'm at OG Ted Berg. Tim is at Tim Britton. Uh, you can email it to me at asktedberg at gmail.com. Please, if you enjoy the show, uh, rate us, review us, subscribe on Apple Podcasts and everywhere else you find your podcasts. Tim, as always, it has been a pleasure. Adios, Ted. Peace. Peace.